We're going to look at Acts chapter 6. We're in a, a series, your series through the book of Acts. Preaching is proclaiming God's word to God's people in order to prepare them to be presented fully mature to God in Christ. And I, I really uh, am prayerful this morning that the word of God will um, come come. Uh, be a sort of made new again in us. You know, we talk about, even this morning, we've talked about things like singing a new song. And I don't think that necessarily means um, that the song itself has to be new. I'm sure you have been in, in a church service in the last five years where for the 500,000th time, you have sung, sing like never before. Although I have sung this one a million times now, exactly like this. Sing like never before because it's a new day. It's a new praise. It's a new pouring out of my heart. This song has been made new this morning. Uh, so you might be familiar with the book of Acts, but let's come with fresh ears and soft hearts to God who continues to speak. Father, bless your word to our heart this morning. Amen. Wonderful. I just want to start with the observation that uh, there's a pattern in the Bible that um, when something new is happening, Satan often tries to uh, take it out at its birth, take it out when it's young and vulnerable. You think about Moses having to survive Pharaoh's attempt to wipe him out as a, as a baby and that escape on the, on the River Nile in the, in the basket, or Jesus himself escaping by the skin of his teeth when Herod is trying to murder uh, the two-year-olds in Bethlehem, escaping to Egypt, being preserved. And the church is young. Here in the book of Acts, we're looking at the birth of the church in a sense. The church has been under attack since chapter one. Uh, they're fearful, they're locked in an upper room, they're afraid that what's just happened to Jesus is going to happen to them. Uh, they're confused, they're stewing. Peter is reflecting that he's just denied Christ three times and he's the one that's always listed first. And the, in the, you know, he's, he's the rock on which the church will be built, depending on how you read that passage. Um, but he's, he's got some primary role there. He's feeling uh, that heartbreak. Um, Acts chapter two, the Spirit's poured out. Immediately, everybody starts mocking them. You know, goodness me, you guys all look drunk. What is the point of that? Chapter three, they're, they're beginning to um, experience some opposition uh, when there's that healing and uh, confusion about who they are. Maybe they're Zeus, maybe they're, you know, and then they're thrown in prison. Acts chapter four, persecuted, told not to keep preaching. Acts chapter five, opposition not now just from the outside, but internally, Ananias and Sapphira, they're guilty of hypocrisy. They're guilty of lying. They're guilty of making themselves more than they actually are. And uh, there's, there's, they're, they're dealt with. They're dealt with. But all through that opposition, the church is growing. Okay, so it's not, the chart is always going up and to the, to the right. Up and to the right. We always want our charts to go up and to the right, don't we? That's, that's not how it always works. Sometimes it's going up and to the right, even in the midst of attack and opposition and difficulty. 
And they come to a new set of difficulties here in Acts chapter 6. Difficulties in the midst of growth. In those days, Acts chapter 6 verse 1, in those days as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint. Now in the first service I made the rather cheeky observation that this is a supernatural book full of supernatural things, things that just can't happen, like uh, the Red Sea being parted, or stars being flung into space, or complaints arising in a church. Would that ever happen? It does happen. We know it happens. It happens even in this church that we admire so much in the book of Acts. It's real. The Bible is real. There arose a complaint by the Hellenist Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good repute, good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, who we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, and the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. I think it's always interesting to look at what each gospel writer, uh, which each scripture writer, how they define Christianity. And one of the things that Luke is looking for is, is obedience. How he describes the priests becoming Christians is they became obedient to the faith. So a complaint arose in the church between the Greek-speaking Jews, the culturally Greek Jews, and the sort of culturally Jewish Jews. I think it was a melting pot of cultures at that point. Historically, the Assyrians had attacked and, and invaded the Babylonians, uh, latterly the Greeks, Alexander the Great, then the Romans. They had taken people from Israel, had them there for centuries, brought them back for decades, sometimes different generations mixed together. And at this point in history, Greek is the sort of global language, the global culture. And so some of these people were ethnically Jewish but culturally Greek. And then there were some ethnically Jewish but culturally Jewish folk. And it may have been that one party looked at the other and thought, oh, you're all modern and cool and kind of you speak the, the language of the world. And the other group looks at them and thinks, oh, you know, oh my word, you guys really are like the real deal. You're the most Jewish, Jewish people. And you're probably a little bit holier than now and think you're the bee's knees. I don't know what they were thinking. I'm speculating. 
but there was a little bit of a miscommunication between these two groups. It was a miscommunication around these widows. And uh, Timothy 5 talks about who qualifies as a widow. These were women over 60, without a husband, without children, who had been uh, faithful. These were amazing women. The reason that they were not being looked after, primarily because the temple system should have been taking care of them, the reason the temple wasn't taking care of them was that they had become Christians. And so they had literally been made to choose between being fed and following Jesus. They were amazing. And as such, there was rightly people in the church who were championing their cause and saying it isn't right that they're being overlooked. Something was going wrong. I don't think the apostles were out going out of their way to overlook them, but something was happening. Maybe they were in a Greek-speaking congregation. The church in Jerusalem may have been between five and 15,000 people at this point. They might have broken down into language groups. Widows, apart from these temple provisions, in, in in normal society wouldn't have had uh, the status that would have protected them. They were vulnerable. They didn't have land rights. They didn't have uh, a husband to provide for them. They didn't even have children to provide for them in their old age. They were starting vulnerable and getting daily more vulnerable. And so it was critically important that this problem was solved. The context is the church is growing, but the problem needs to be solved. So if, if in your church right now, Life Church Peterborough, who is in the midst of multiplication, literally, planting a church in the Netherlands, it wouldn't be surprising if problems arose during this period. I'm not, I'm not wishing it on you, but I think these things often come together. So let's be vigilant and let's be honest. If problems arise, let's deal with them. The apostles deal with them by gathering the church together and saying, what are we going to do? We need to give ourselves to the preaching of the word. Now, I want to be really crystal clear that preaching the word is not better than caring for widows. The essential thing is that you're faithful to what God calls you to. Okay, so just put yourself in Peter's shoes. Peter's been with Jesus for a number of years. He's seen Jesus' example. For example, Mark chapter 6, Jesus looks on the crowd and he has compassion on them, so he teaches them. That's his solution. When Peter falls and denies Christ three times, Jesus takes him aside and says, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Peter has got that ringing in his ears. Quite apart from the Great Commission, Jesus standing before them saying, teaching them to obey all I have commanded you. So he, Peter, has been told to preach. And now this distraction has arisen in the church. There's pressure on him to give himself to something 
that he's not called to primarily. And so I think rightly, he and the apostles understand what they are called to. But they also understand this needs to be dealt with. And we are a body. One is a head, one is an ear, one is a hand. So from amongst yourselves, choose seven men. There's some historical uh, data to suggest that whenever a problem arose in the temple, they would just get a committee together of seven people. So that seemed to be like in their thinking. No big kind of theological reason for it, but that was their tradition. Choose seven men. Later in the New Testament, we see Phoebe and other female deacons uh, serving the church, but here uh, they're told to choose seven men who are full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. Everything is spiritual. Everything is spiritual. There isn't a sacred and secular divide. This this idea came in with with, um, sort of the Roman emperor who made the whole of the Roman Empire Christian. His name's on the top of my tongue, but I can't quite remember. Who am I thinking about? Constantine, okay? Constantine basically made Rome Christian by law. And if you were born in a Roman country, then you were born a Christian. And we have been trying to get rid of that idea for the last few hundred years. It's so unhelpful. It's so unhelpful. They were to serve these people practically, but with hearts on fire for the Lord and wisdom that came from him because everything is spiritual. Preaching the word is spiritual. Caring for one another is spiritual. And these guys proved to be quite something, didn't they? If you've read the rest of the book of Acts, you see immediately in chapter 7, Stephen giving the archetypal sermon before his death. He becomes the first Christian martyr. His sermon becomes the template for sermons to come. Then you see Philip, another one of these guys, being used powerfully as an evangelist, going from one place to another, meeting the Ethiopian eunuch in the middle of the desert. I was once preaching on this, and instead of calling him a eunuch, I was pounding the pulpit, I said, and then appeared a unicorn. <laughs> I mean a eunuch. These, these were quality, quality people. And it pleased the church. They chose these seven guys. It pleased the church. The church continued to grow. And this lovely detail at the end, a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. We don't know why that was, but I imagine maybe these priests, they had been the ones serving these widows. Then they came to faith. They weren't being served anymore. These priests knew what it was costing these widows to follow Jesus. Maybe it was as simple as their example to these priests drew them to faith. Whatever was happening in the church drew these priests to faith, and it was really good. The apostles gave themselves to the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word. 
Jesus moves powerfully through his word. He is the word. There's division. There's vision and there's division. There was a moment of division in the church, but Jesus, our Messiah, prays for our unity, doesn't he? John 17, make them one as you and I are one, Father. Jesus is our unity. But they looked after people. Jesus came as one who didn't come to be served, but to serve, the servant king. He is the servant king. He's the word, but he doesn't just speak. He acts, he serves. And that's how we, this new community that Christ is creating, are to look after one another. We're to know what we're called to. We're to rely on one another. We're to be united. And none of these things come from us. They come from Christ, who is these things for us. So let's pray. Father, thank you that you are our unity, you are our peace, you are the word, you are the servant king. Your death and resurrection changes everything. You're the one who came from the palace of heaven to earth to be identified with us, to bring us to faith through your obedience, through your service, through your word.